Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm Dave Gebro, and I'm Joe Kennedy, and we are the hosts of uh, of this particular podcast. First things first, you guys need to know just how seriously we take this shit. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. And we ain't just covering albums, we do the whole kit and caboodle, if you're familiar with 1920s slang terminology. Uh, we do deep dive analysis of EPs, singles, comp tracks, bootlegs, you name it, we do it. Everything is rated with an objectively accurate star rating from zero to five. Which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Today on Discography, we'll be turning the spray cans on the band. Getting back to the country turned junkies touring stadiums. And we have a very but special first, yeah, yeah, we yeah. have a very special guest today. To, very, very special. To, to take this journey with us. Our guest this morning is a survivor. A survivor of a traumatic childhood growing up in Los Angeles in the 1960s. Survivor of the heroin-fueled punk rock days of the 80s. Survivor of homelessness and hopelessness. Survivor of drug addiction at its lowest, most fucked up nadir through the 90s, only to create a new existence as a middle class dad and rehab specialist for the last three decades. Music is this man's religion. The one pure thing at the center through it all. If it weren't for the Beach Boys and Bob Dylan, tonight's guest says he would have killed himself a long, long time ago. I totally fucking get it. Peep the smile tattoo emblazoned atop my heart and the Milton Glaser Bob Dylan posters tattooed on the insides of both my eyelids. Please, lads and ladies out in Discography City, will you please put your hearts and minds together in welcoming fellow music obsessive and ex-monster from Thelonious Monster, a man no longer tethered to Dr. Drew's VH1 style of recovery. <laughs> Here he is, naked and afraid, and standing before you all, but not interested in your emotional validation, Bob Forrest. Hey, wow, that's the greatest intro I've ever had. you got to come to my funeral. <laughs> Wait, we're only allowed into the funeral? We can't talk at it? That's yeah. fucking bullshit. No, you got to say that speech because there's going to be a lot of naysayers. Oh, man, but Bob, wow. thank, thanks so much for being here, man. I have a big smile on my face right now. I'm so well, excited. I'm looking, I'm so excited forward for this. to it. Yeah. I want to um, mention, let, let me mention first. Okay. We, so I called you a few days ago, just the perfunctory, hey, you know, a few days away from this thing. And you were already shooting me back, uh, you know, these uh, obscure club date appearances that Rick Danko did. And uh, you're, you were on it and already podcasting before the mics were on. So I want to thank you for, you know, being as obsessed with making sure this turned out perfect as, as we are. Well, I, I believe music is a way of life and I, I don't know it as a commodity. Like it became a commodity in our lives, me and my friends' lives as people paid attention to our music. But you got to understand, you didn't start a band in 1984 that sounded like the Chili Peppers or Thelonious Monster or the Replacements thinking you're going to be playing stadiums. There's right. no fucking way to get from the the music we were playing and the clubs we were playing in and to, to even think that that was possible. So the new music movement in America that was inspired by the punks, it really was pure and, and communal. And whether and, it was and for that and for that specific reason, it seemed even though it was a little bit of a sideways uh, uh, match, 
that you and the band, it you know, even though we went through different yeah, I am, possibilities. I am, I am the band of the of the of that my generation. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was yeah. A, I was a good songwriter. I knew how to play music, but I wasn't you know one of those types of personalities that get so much attention or whatever. Um, so. So I felt it. You made up for that by getting as much attention as is humanly possible. (laughs) (laughs) From from drug addiction and getting arrested. That helps. But, uh, but, but, you know, I really have this deep love of the band, not even like, of course, they're great albums and great songs, but them as these humble musicians, when it comes time to name the band, they just say the band. And, and to me that, that just struck me when I read that about them saying in 1985 or something, I, you know, uh, how I discovered the band was obviously how 90% of the people that discovered them was through Bob Dylan and, and in particular the basement tapes, but, but I now am in a house right now. I'm hidden out in my daughter's bedroom. Um, I have three kids. It's all crazy. And I try to relive, what Dylan lived in Woodstock with all those guys lived in, in, in uh, Woodstock with their kids barefoot. You know, I tell my kids go outside and step on a rusty nail. I don't want you on a fucking iPad. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so we live in a real rural area of Los Angeles and then we get to come out to the beach on the weekends. And my daughter was already in the ocean today and we try to stay away from, and there's iconic pictures of that, big pink era Dylan <laughs> you know what's era. funny so Bob we're looking at them so I own the the basement tapes box set you know the the newest one right. that came out with everything in, in chronological order and the packaging is just insane it comes with these incredible hardcover books and we, yeah, we, we found them, like, the best pictures here, yeah. yeah and it's them standing right outside big pink getting ready for the uh Elliot Landy photo shoot yeah, um, and mine was the Life magazine about Dylan once he moved to Woodstock. I remember seeing yeah. that as a kid and thinking, wow, what the biggest rock star in the world lives in the fucking woods and his kids are running around in diapers, with no shirts right. on, no shoes on. I remember having that image in my head at like seven or eight years old. Like, that's yeah. fucking cool. And so I, I'm 60, 50 years later, I'm living out that fantasy <laughs> in and, a right, strange right. kind and, of and, and 21st so century way. That, that emotional resonance that is, you know, very strong, even more powerful undertow under the music, um, it made it, and I'm guessing for, for Joe as well, but we'll hear from him in a second. It, it was a very emotional troll. Uh, to take we we listen to so much music for the show and i gotta say and it paints me to be the biggest pussy on planet earth but several times during this trawl um i was crying you know sp- well yeah and i th- cry for richard emmanuel Manuel, yeah, yeah. And, and just tears of rage and just these songs i mean i heard that record on a, a bootleg that my sister had when i was like 13 years old and just the voice the hauntedness of the voice and then it's it's so different than what you were hearing on am radio at that era 1974 75 that you knew this is special now i didn't know much about it i just know that i was introduced to the band via bob dylan when i was very young yeah and and then come back around to the early 80s when i i you know turned 21 and stuff just the tapestry that 
that that opens up to you. And yes, you and I were talking a couple days ago. They invented Americana music, and four of them were for fuck from fucking Canada. Right? It's How beautiful. crazy is that? It's perfect. It takes an outsider <laughs> to really understand this country. I think. Well, you kind of touched it on really a little. Does. You touched on it a little earlier, Bob, about their, um, you know, their their eat how they their egolessness, you know, how they really, uh, there are all these amazing musicians, but they approach things in this really collective kind of way. They have an amazing they didn't approach. They didn't approach recording precious either. Like they just get, get in a room and fucking play. If you know how to play fucking play. Yeah. And they spent so you much time, I mean? they spent so much time playing together and spent so many thousands of hours learning how to play together that they're really incredible at like playing amazing shit, but then like not stepping on each other's toes and you, you know what it knowing just when to have that little flourish and how to fill in those spaces. And it's never busy. And it's, 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 it's like this collective hive minds that they have going this, the, the, the interaction between the five of them is like a sixth member. Yeah. And, and we were, we were talking, we did the raincoats a few weeks ago and Joe and I were talking with uh, Oh my god. <laughs> such a great band, but but here's the similarity between them and the band is that they didn't know about playing with other people. They didn't know what they sounded like alone. They just played together. And so that was the instrument was the entire band. Um but um you know, and even in the uh the few months into the pandemic, the summer of 2020, I visited Big Pink and Birdcliff. Um, you know, uh, we didn't go, you know, into Dylan's property, but um it just became a huge source of solace for me, you know, during this uh inarguably shit-encrusted time in America's history. <laughs> um anyway, let's go let's go back to the very beginning, shall we? We're going to do a segment I like to call the run-up, which brings us up to the first thing that they ever released. So uh, the members of the band gradually came together in the Hawks, which was the backing group for uh, the rockabilly singer Ronnie Hawkins in Toronto. Uh, Levon Helm was the first one on board, began playing with the group in 1957, and then became the full-time drummer after he graduated from high school in '58. Now, Ronnie Hawkins' uh, strategy of, of like dealing with the local music scene is that he would basically poach all the best guys from the rival bands. So he saw Levon Very play, smart. poached him, you know, so not only to uh, make his own band good, but to like snuff out the competition. So uh, he did all of us a great favor uh, by doing that. He, he, and then somehow this coalesced from, from that strategy. <laughs> yeah. um, so he, uh, Levon journeyed with, uh, with Ronnie Hawkins from Arkansas to Ontario. And that's where the story starts to fall into place. They were joined by Robertson. So Levon Helm and Robertson are really the core duo at the heart of the band, which is what kind of underscores the later tragic consequences of their shattered friendship later on. But slowly and surely, Danko, Manuel, and Hudson join. Let's, for those not in the know, which is probably 0% of the listening public right now, Rick Danko, Richard Manuel, Garth Hudson. While most of the Hawks were eager to join Ronnie's group, uh, Garth was the holdout. Garth uh, played hard to get. He had graduated college, uh, had planned on being a music teacher, and only wanted to play rock music as a hobby. So they, but everyone admired his style, kept asking me to, to join. He finally said yes, only if the Hawks paid him $10 a week to be their instructor. So all music questions were directed to Hudson. Now we're in phase one. The backing band, 1957 to 1966. Before we go on, let's. I would like to take a minute and just talk about a little bit about each of them individually. Um, you know, they 
I'm a keyboard player kind of primarily. And I would say my number one influence probably ever playing keyboards is Garth Hudson. I mean, it's good. Oh, that's, that's crazy that you say that. Cause he's, he's, he's really a difficult musician to follow and latch onto. And there's these aspects of carnival keyboard, yes. like a carnival and, and, and they obviously have a song life is a carnival, but I got to work with Garth Hudson. I just wanted to mm-hmm. kind of chime in if I can. And, you know, I'm an audiophile like you guys and I, the history of music and blah, blah, blah. And so I get him. He's very, I wouldn't say guarded. He's just very quiet guy. He's an, uh, he's so an, enig- sitting, an enigmatic sort yeah. of fellow. So I ask him, like, did you guys know you were inventing a genre of music? And he goes, he was really quiet. And he just goes, people give, give us too much credit. We weren't that smart. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, God bless him. Yeah. And I was just like, fuck, you know, us audio files need to back off on our philosophies about things. But, but yeah, he's just, he's an incredibly elegant and soulful player. Yeah. And And just how they went from rockabilly to rock and roll to Dylan to the band and over an eight year period of time. One of the cool things about doing a trawl like this in such intense fashion and chronological order is you really get to hear the development uh, or the arc. But with these guys, the one of the big surprises was that even super early on, their sound was pretty well developed. But by the time they recorded anything, they'd played together for a billion hours. Yeah, 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 exactly. So uh, keep going through them, the individual guys. So let's say, okay, we'll take Robbie Robertson next, right? I mean, he has such a, a pure take on the blues. It's like there's no like dweedly dweedly like <laughs> going on yeah. with Robbie. It's all like concise, like well chosen, like stinging leads. He makes every note really matter. Um, not an overplayer, and of course, an amazing songwriter. So you know, incredible asset to have in your band. I mean, Levon, come on. I mean, Levon's the like Levon Helm is the the all time greatest of all time of playing drums and singing at the same time. That's true. <laughs> Nobody That's true. is gonna be even in the same ballpark. Dude, Don and, Henley's gonna be calling in any second. Well, if, I, I don't know if you guys have seen. There's a. Uh, <laughs> I, was gonna, I was gonna say that. Like, no, he's not a. He's not, dude. I'm kidding. The problem with Don no. Henley is he can't play drums like Levon. Like, no, I know. was explaining it to my son, who's a drummer and piano player, and I said there's only three people who can sing and play drums at the same time, and it's it's Levon. Don Henley and Karen Carpenter. Right. That's the only three yeah. I've ever known that can do. Levon really it, integrates the singing with the drumming in a way where I don't know if you guys have ever seen the classic album series thing about um, it's about the Brown album. And they kind of go through track by track and they ha- they have, uh, you know, Levon talks about playing and singing. And it's like, you know, sometimes like I'll act, he'll accent like a note when his voice with the kick, you know, like kind of lean into it. And he, this, it's really integrated the way he plays and sings at the same time. It's really like. But you can't jump to him without really giving Robbie Robertson the credit. Yeah, that sure. stingingness that you're talking yeah. about. Oh, don't worry. Robbie arranging... Robertson will be jumping in front of well, you that... taking the credit. <laughs> he, yeah, I know. I know. And that's what's so hard to praise him about. Yeah, I love Robbie. But we'll really, be, co- we'll be coming was... back to this topic over and over. <laughs> he was the greatest at arranging yeah. When the sounds come in, yes. yeah. and if you and if you, especially when you watch the last waltz, everyone who comes on that stage and everyone in the band looks at him, and he tells Levon when to hit the rack tom, boom, 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 yeah, you know what I mean. And so his his, I don't even think it's really musical arrangement in the classic sense, like you know, like David Axelrod or something. It's music arrangement in the moment yeah, on the fly right, where right. It, at where it's happening 
And so then when he, in his mind, I've always thought he must think like, all right, we gave Rick his spot. We gave the horns their spot. Levon's singing like a motherfucker. Now I'm going to sting. And you're right in describing his guitar playing as stinging because it's really not even a whole 12 bars that he does solos. It's only like, Eight and, and on the Dylan yeah. stuff, it's like bam, nah, 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 yeah. nah, like just great, stuff great like com- little comments that he yeah, makes. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so Rick Danko, to me, you know, great bass player, uh, the very strong singer, and kind of like a heart and soul kind of element of the band. Yeah, you have to have him in the band, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you very key. I great, feel the, like the vocal, it, blend. and this is arguable, but I feel like he's the most distinctive. If you had to pick a lead singer from the band, it would be yeah. Him. Well, he's also punk rock in the sense like you can tell he loves playing music, doesn't give a fuck. Just like, why are we stopping? Let's play some more. You can I have seen YouTube videos of him like stand on stage and they won't come back out for a second encore. And he's like, what the fuck? I'll just play. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he also. uh... And, and, And speaking of, he was the very first one out of the gate with a solo record. Yeah. 1977. 1977. But I think, you know, where, uh, you know, Richard kind of has the broken voice and has that beautiful, fragile voice. But Danko's voice, too, I think is really key. Danko is kind of like, is like, this me, the, the beating heart of it. And then last, not least, Richard Manuel, um, you know, the, the kind of the distinctive vocal that that that, uh, that that broken, kind of fragile, sad, haunted, pained style of vocal, uh, you know, of, of his of his singing, um, you know, uh, just, my favorite. Yeah, amazing, amazing singer. And, you know, there's a there's some of these, like, later in their career when they start to kind of tail off a little bit, there are some songs, you know, there are some records that aren't as good as the early ones, but when it's, it's like he could sing the phone book and it's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's like he, ne- even when he's, like, off key and, and not singing great, it still sounds great. It, does. <laughs> it still sounds amazing. It's just the the quality of his humanity that makes him such a great singer. Um, not to mention his, you know, the, the actual singing itself. It doesn't get more on high than Tears of Rage. It doesn't get more vulnerable it doesn't get more like i'm with you i want to hold you i you know i want to relieve your burden it makes the listener want to hug him yeah and then but then intellectually i'm like what are tears of rage i don't even really understand it (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean like like is he you know but that the way his voice fits into the somberness of that song is just there there's nothing better at describing yeah. suicide depression it's disillusionment. just a, it's just a deep deep uh endless sorrow and he can't sing any other way really it's just how it right. comes out of him you know right. it's, it's so honest because yeah. that's just the way he sings um, and, and a fine piano player in his own right too. yes so okay now we've kind of introduced all of them we know all the players let's start delving into the yeah and you were work. right to stop me because because honestly the blend of these guys, even in their harmony, yeah. uh, was to di- make the blend distinctive so that you could hear all the voices separately. And yeah. so you really do have to talk about all those guys. So phase one, the backing band, 1957 to 1966. The first commercially available appearance of the band on record from the musical history box set uh, starts with 1963's Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, Who Do You Love? Uh, and somehow... This song is ridiculously good. It's not just of historical interest. It builds to this apocalyptic intensity halfway through and just stays there. Um, He definitely should have been a lot more concerned about them absconding. I would give this song four stars. I gave it the same, four. 
Um, yeah, this is a great place to start. Um, Robbie in particular, amazing on this track. I mean, he's, yeah. like, he's just killing it. Um, you know, again, not as great. The, his greatness is in the phrasing, the, the bag of licks that he has. Um, and you know, this, this must've been quite a showstopper when they played this live. This and and just as a, live. as a quick note, uh, these songs that we're talking about here, uh, come out in 63 and 64, but were actually recorded around 61 and just released later. Yeah. And they're all conveniently on the, um, the excellent, um, box set, the band of musical history. And they're yeah. all kind of laid out in this chronology on there it's like kind of like this is what this is kind of basically disc one yeah. right, almost all those are on the Bob, did you did you but get the cross but, paths with this one um yes but but i want to talk about how the, these records came out originally they were regional records they weren't they they weren't national right. records right so right they were like the they younger, were like kings of the scene and no one knew them they outside were, of there yeah like in memphis in the south and and up to the atlantic seaboard but but no one on the West Coast really ever heard these records. Well, and that's no, they, what I love this is, about. This is, isn't this more of a Toronto thing? No, but they but they were popular in Memphis. I know that's one place they went to play. Okay, so they would just go to Ronnie Hawkins gig there. North and yeah. South. Yeah, yeah, the Chitlin. The Ch- it was called the Chitlin Circuit. Right, which that makes sense. which is kind of a big tent universal thing to roadhouses you know bars that makes the, sense that the, they would gig there that yeah yes, it, yeah, yeah. Natural, yeah. Bob, you're so trying to explain just, this to me but i grew up in greased up okay. juke joints okay That's my, I'm, no, just I'm, trying I'm, I'm trying to explain it i'm trying to explain it to the audience because yeah, yeah. who who they would have crossed paths with in 63 64 is Jimi hendrix playing in little richard's band right. is ike turner just playing endlessly you talk about the endless tour ike turner toured from 1951 till the day he died rocket 88 i mean yeah, rocket 88 baby yeah everybody always asks me who wrote the rock first rock and roll song as that's ike rocket turner, 88 of all people <laughs> yep rocket 88 you know and what an exciting era that must have been like you're just you know because it was very small it's like five states so when you think about the musicianship that came out of the chitlin circuit and out of this ronnie hawkins circuit that that the band was in for four three or four or five years yeah i mean it's the greatest musicians of the 21st century greatest rock and roll musicians of the 20th century so so playing night after night and playing not for 50 minutes playing for five hours right they have the same the, the beatles had this similar kind of experience just playing that so many hours on stage and the 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 beatles have the same kind of like telepathy as a band when they're at their best um that's really you kind of have to just put in the work well in the documentary the, the beatles actually the new get back documentary they never actually play a whole song all the way through they're just rehearsing kind of talking rehearsing it's not until they go on the roof of the building that they actually play and it just comes together perfectly it is because they perfect. known each other every minute of every second of their lo- adult lives. And that's what the band is back to these early singles. Okay. So 1964, Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, you know, I love you, baby. Um, <clears throat> this one is a, a slower, less explosive blues, more of a, a creeper. Uh, with some sax and some female background vocals. Again, not sounding like the band yet, but still good. I give it three stars. Uh, this one was two and a half for me. This yeah, is kind of more of a- I'm not- I'm not crazy about this era. Yeah, I yeah. understand what you're saying. You can hear their personalities just like sneaking through a little bit. Like you can detect like Levon's drumming a little bit, and um, you know Robbie's Robbie's you know uh, lead playing. 
But um, th- I think Robbie more than anything. Yeah, yeah, this doesn't really quite have the same magic as the "Who Do You Love" track. Um, I agree. And then there's there's a handful of these that are that are you know pretty good. Yeah, you know, yeah. Solid so blues numbers from the same but... year. Further on up the road and 19 years old from from Ronnie's album Mojo Men. Again, more slow creeper blues. Uh, decent stuff, but not a detonated bomb like Hootie. Yeah, I would say more of archival interest if you want to check out yeah. what they were up to, rather you know, in, as opposed to something. I think like I to. think you can feel that they're disappointed in what's happening, and they're going through the motions, and they're looking for, you know, I, I sense like a band trying to figure out how do we get to New York. Absolutely, I totally agree. So totally let me agree. let me do another run up, which brings us uh, to to Levon on the Hawks. Okay, so, so yeah, when so when they get to the, the Levon on the Hawks record and they're not working with uh, Ronnie anymore, you could, they really their personality does break out quite a bit. I think. Right. So in late '63, um, they split from Hawkins. <clears throat> they were tired of playing the same stuff. They wanted to do original stuff, and also uh, the Hawks would get fined if they brought gr- their girlfriends to the clubs or if they smoked weed. And it's well documented that they really liked weed. So, um, you know, Robertson actually said, eventually Hawkins built us up to the point where we outgrew his music and had to leave. He shot himself in the foot, really, bless his heart, by sharpening us into such a crackerjack band that we had to go on out into the world because we knew what his vision was for himself. And we were all younger and more ambitious musically. So when they left Hawkins, they were very briefly known as the Levon Helm Sextet. With a sixth member, uh, a sax player named Jerry, sorry Jerry Penfound, <clears throat> and then as Levon on the Hawks after Penfound left. That brings us to November 1964. Uh, we have a couple of outtakes: Bacon Fat and Robbie's Blues, and a Spring '65 outtake: Honky Tonk. These are all Levon on the Hawks uh, workouts. What do you guys think about these songs? Um, you know, I think these are really cool. Oh, I was going to say, Levon's starting to develop what he eventually is going to sound like as a singer on the on the second track here that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right? Because because you can you can feel him finding what he's going to be, yeah. and he's going to become the voice of of the American yeah. Revolution. Really, yeah. <laughs> like he's going to, you know, and and I like this, but it's still I can feel their ambition. It just like seems like they're looking for something. They don't. They don't quite. They don't know who they are quite yet. I mean, Robbie's Blues, for example, is a bluesy instrumental with a flute solo. It's not the band yet, but it. But it's good. You know, I give this stuff three and a half stars if I could group it together. I, I think through this era is where you see their ambition. They don't know where they're going, but they're heading there. Yeah. And 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 simultaneous to this, and I can pick this up. Dylan's having a very difficult time transitioning. And so you see, I just always thought it's these two trains running on the same track at each other. Yeah, it is destiny with these guys. So, and but we're we're almost there. So he's right around the corner. But so in, for these uh, to me, like Bacon Fat, Robbie's Blues. That's I guess those that was an A and B side. I gave that mm-hmm. one four stars. But I really like the no. One these one. are outtakes actually. Oh, they're, oh, they're, okay. yeah, yeah. I had those grouped together for some reason. Honky Tonk is is my favorite of the bunch. That's that one I gave four and a half. I, that song can just seems like it just really rips. It, 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 it sounds yeah. like a four piece on that. It sounds like there's only four people playing. So I wonder if who hasn't joined yet. Maybe it was maybe Manual wasn't in the band yet. I read the two biographies. They had no money and they would go back somewhere. They would play on, go on a tour with somebody else that, that in Levon's book, he talks about that. Yeah. I know, I know Levon, you know, it's well documented that he left when 
musically things were at a pretty incredible peak. Yeah, we're not really there quite yet. We're not. It's right. That's right around the corner. Yeah. A lot of stuff is, but anyway. So, uh, Joe, what do you give this stuff? I, like I said, I gave uh, Bacon Fat and Robbie's Loose four, and then Hockey's Tonk four and a half. Oh, wow, you really? Like I really this like stuff. it a lot. Wow. Yeah, I really, I, these I would listen to for like enjoyment Damn. for sure. I would playlist um, these. Well, I I didn't have it on my playlist list, but you're gonna, have, gonna to, have to you're gonna have there. to put it on there. All right. So also in '64, they released a single on Ware Records under the name the Canadian Squires. That name didn't last long. They returned to Levon on the Hawks for a recording session uh, for Atco later that year. But 1964's Canadian Squires single is Uh Uh Uh, backed with Leave Me Alone. And Uh 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 is basic bluesing about. Um, Song is not really much to write home about. Leave Me Alone's better. It's kind of a snotty teenage stomper. uh, And it's funny to hear it because... They become so high-minded within a couple of years. So to hear this sort of, hey, get out of here. Is, anyway, I, I give this single three stars. I give it the same. This one's kind of a weird outlier. It is like a nuggets kind of thing. You know? yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah. Like, a, I, like dirty water or something. You know? can, right. can I be honest? Can I be honest here? Yes, yeah. we insist. So I, I, I have the box set that has it. This is, this is when I start clicking through to the next track. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get I it. I get it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm being honest. Yeah, yeah but okay. yeah, no, no, no. We insist on your honesty because coming up, we're going to really be cashing in on that. So, um, you know, this next song to me is when they start sounding like the band. Definitely. Yeah, so now we're back to Leave so, On and the Hawks. The yeah, they're, they're Leave On and the Hawks. The Stones I Throw backed with He Don't Love You and It'll Break Your Heart. So the Stones I Throw definitely is like you can pick out all the elements it's the band it's sort of a tender folk soul tune and uh, you got rick danko peeling out a incredible empathetic vocal and hudson's organ sounds like streams of mountain water for the very first time which you know i will continue to love that sound up until when his horrifying synthscapes of the mid 70s take over he has a bad moment there in the late he does he does a little carried away but uh the stones (laughs) i throw is a great song um it almost feels like we can talk from big pink uh the flip is decent a little less forward thinking i give the single four stars I gave it the same. This is a four for me too. And it, I think you're right. It does sound like the band. It's kind of like, uh, it's, I really love Danko's vocal. It never really crossed my mind until I heard this song. Um, you know, I, I love Danko and Manuel as singers, but they're, they really exist in a similar range. So when they sing together, it really sits like they have, they have a very similar range and kind of tone style wise are a little bit different, but yeah, uh, yeah. but the, they, they really work well together as singles. I think the flip side is manual singing, right? I think it's I'm side not, A I is Dink Danko. I couldn't even really tell hundred uh, percent, which made me kind of realize that they are, they are. Did you just call him close. Dick Danko? No, I said Danko. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Although Dick Danko is, has really good, like it's a private sta- eye sta- name. stage name or something. More of a private eye. <laughs> Bob, what do you think about, you got a star rating for us for this one? Yeah, no, well, I just see them flailing around and the things that are going on at the time, you know, when I went through the early stuff when the box set came out, I was like, I can feel them flailing around trying to find a way after they leave Hawkins because you're not getting into what a little 
like dictator Hawkins was. Yeah. Like he would true. find them. He like, you yeah. know, they got drunk if they showed up late and he was like running it like the military and now they don't have him. And now they're just kind of trying to find their way. It's a miracle that they stayed together through this. You time. know, what's, you know, what's interesting is that he would find them if he smoked weed. So all these drug related deaths that occurred later on, if they only stayed with Ronnie Hawkins, they'd probably all <laughs> still be alive. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. so they're trying to, that they stayed together. Um, you're hitting the time when they kind of break apart, but they know now from this working hard together that they can do something together without somebody dictating to them, you know, when to be at rehearsal. They, they become a band now, but it doesn't hold together because it seemed to me they're trying to go with this flow or that flow. The blues are popular because of, you know, Al Cooper and the blues project or what's going on in New York that, you know, Levon keeps talking in his book about them being very conscious of what's going on in music. Mm -hmm. They weren't a bunch of hicks. Right. And, and so I think this track reminds me of, they're trying to be, you know, that Memphis sound, the soul sound type thing. Yeah. Yeah, Do you think it's it's a bandwagon thing? You don't think that? No, I think they're trying to figure out who they are. They're not, you know, people, people bandwagging are bandwagoning are the people that can play anything and they just play the flavor of the month. These guys are trying to discover what they are. Yeah, I really believe that in the truest sense of like, because, you know, it's not like your atypical kind of uh, pop band of the mid 60s, a fairy cross of mercy dressed in suits, though there are pictures of Levon helm dress like that <laughs> yeah now you know what's, you know, you know what, what you know what's funny is that you know back then in those days maybe not 65 but certainly 67 68 authenticity was the only thing that mattered yeah. these guys were like the most authentic but it's funny what uh you know listening to the most authentic group of all time uh wear ill-fitting suits in their parents closet that's what it, you, you i couldn't say it better this is that that period those yeah, two years yeah. where they're another yeah, thing about that's them what this is they're all still very young here too they're kind of like old souls they seem like they're always kind of older than they actually are um that they're born in like all kind of like the mid 40s so in like the mid 60s they're kind of in their early 20s still they're still kind of like babies you know they, yeah. they, they look a lot older they like by the time they do like the brown album or something they look like they're all like 40 or something but they're like 26 <laughs> they're all really young right yeah well I'll, I'll just say this thing that i've heard i forget what musician said it was like a, a delta blues like that cocaine is a hell of a drug <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're almost there. So in 1965, <laughs> we have, uh, again, Levon on the Hawk single. We have Go Go Liza Jane backed with He Don't Love You. So Go Go Liza Jane is a sort of traditional spiritual. It's a traditional spiritual, right? Given It has a church-like sense of excitement in the performance. Mm-hmm. Um, not what the band would become, but, uh, but definitely a strand of their music. So it's slightly odd to hear one of the strands of their music. They play this pretty confidently. Like it's like it's pretty cool they can play in that gospel groove so authentically. The goat version of Liza Jane is uh, Nina Simone. That's the ultimate version. Her version's incredible. They play it good. Um like you said not really what they became and then but now, and this is kind of like the last now we're, we're going into a new uh, whole, whole other era here yeah. after this song. In 1965, speaking of straight blues, so Helm and the band met. This is would 
would have been a very interesting diversion for the band or digression. They met um, Sonny Boy Williamson. They offered to become his backing band. But what happened was uh, Williamson, he died not long after their meeting. But they could have been, he could have done, uh, they could have done the Bob Dylan thing with Sonny Boy Williamson. Right. So, but that did not happen. And Destiny had its way. So what happened was they met Bob Dylan. And in October 1965, the first attempts at recording with Bob occurred. And that is, can you please crawl out your window? Which we're not rating for this, but obviously that's an incredible song. So can I pick up from here from the Bob Dylan side of things? Because I made a record with Al Cooper. I knew Tom Wilson. I knew what happened in those in from their end, from the New York end. And what it was was Tom Wilson knew every great musician in New York City. And so when Dylan would call a session, all the greatest of the greats wanted to play with him, but no one wanted to be in his band because they made too much money as studio musicians for every commercial and every album that was made. You're talking about Herbie Flowers, Al Cooper, um, all the greatest of the greats of the New York City um, studio musician world, right. right? They all vied for and wanted and fought for to play on Dylan records, but none of them wanted to be in the band. So right. every time he had to go play a gig, he would try to get those guys to do it. And they'd be like, yeah, you know, I want, they, they would be kind and lead him on kind of, or lead Alan, Al, Al Grossman on, um, Albert Grossman on, because they didn't want to miss the next Dylan studio sessions, but they never went with him except for Al Cooper. Right. And Al Cooper is the one who told me all the greatest stories. I actually listened in while he was talking to Bob Dylan one time on a phone, and it was the craziest conversation I ever heard. <laughs> and so Al Cooper was a songwriter in the Brill Building, wrote This Diamond Ring Doesn't Shine For Me, me, me Anymore, was a studio guitar player. He's very, at the era, 63, 64, 65, he's very in-demand studio guitar player. Also made the so, only the only worthwhile Blood, Sweat, and Tears record and discovered Leonard Skinner. And named the band and discovered Leonard Skinner. Yeah, mm -hmm. but he's known as the organ. And played the, on the Blues Project, which is amazing. And he kind of famously yeah. faked being able to play organ. He wasn't really yes. an organ right. player. Oh, so. I'm going to tell that story. So Al <laughs> talks to Tom Wilson and says, hey, you're doing Dylan. I want to do that. And he goes, okay. And books him, but then to all the regular studio musicians that usually play with Dylan that are available in the studio, Dylan shows up with Michael Bloomfield with a Strat. It was raining outside, a Strat in a brown supermarket paper supermarket <laughs> bag. So Michael shows up with Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan tells the engineer and the, and the producer, like, this is Michael. He's going to play guitar with me today. He knows the song. And, and, Michael Bloomfield just takes his guitar out of the out of the shopping bag, walks into the studio, disconnects Al's guitar, <laughs> plugs into his amp, and sits down in the chair like, "Let's go." And Al's sitting there. He's like, "Got an ego about being a studio musician and a great songwriter and whatever." And he's like, "What the fuck?" And Tom, nobody crosses Dylan. So then Dylan goes out to start singing, and Al Cooper said, "I was sitting in the studio with Tom Wilson and and um, the engineer." And they start working out this song with the musicians and it was like a Rolling Stone and Dylan noticed, I mean, Al noticed there's an organ there in the studio. And he said, he said, Can I, I'm going to go add organ. And just because he knew what a great song it was, he was hearing it 
be coming to fruition, wanted to be a part of it, went to the organ and his story goes, if that thing wasn't turned on, I wouldn't have known how to turn it on. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're hard to turn on. And then, fa- and then famously, his you know his quote unquote style of playing is just behind the beat, and yeah, that's beca- and that's because that's because yeah. he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. <laughs> yes, so, and so he would just follow the melody line, and that's yeah. the, instinct the, alone. The Amazing, famous the famous hook. Yeah. So Al and Bob immediately kind of strike a friendship, and Al's kind of in charge of getting musicians to go out on the road so the so the responsibility falls to al and he can't get these guys these guys you got to understand these musicians are doing getting paid triple scale doing three sessions a day they're not going to go out and play for 40 dollars and and a meal with bob dylan but but they don't want to cross dylan because they want to keep playing on his records because everybody's fascinated by him all of a sudden that he meets the band bob dylan but meets here's here so here's the interesting thing i mean if you just if you don't really know your shit you look at the 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 situation from a distance and you figure that that musical history was made immediately but the honest truth is that they attempted a whole bunch of recording sessions with shitty results so well, they got the right. can, can you please curl out your window is great yeah like th- that one they, that would really fi- clicks yeah but it's, what i'm saying is here come these five guys out of nowhere that can hold themselves toe-to-toe with any great studio drummer bass player piano player organ player guitar player in new york city and they're a band that has no no direction Right. It's the perfect marriage of a genius it is. It musician is. and a genius band. And if and if the band would have taken off a little bit in the South and become a headliner in the Chitlin Circuit, this wouldn't have happened. How much and of if, a, how much of a genius would Robbie Robertson have inevitably been, quote unquote, if he hadn't been able to, you know, have this incredible powwow situation during the summer of love in West Socrates? I mean, right. who, know, who knows? Who knows what really would have happened? But, but in the meantime, it almost didn't happen because uh, Blonde on Blonde, uh, they're only on one song. Great song. One of us must know sooner or later is a great song. But it wasn't happening. So Robbie Robertson was brought out to Nashville to to play on the record, but the band was not. Well, interesting. Interestingly, um, I listened to uh, sooner or later closely for this, and there's a you know you can there's a bunch of times where they kind of fuck up. <laughs> they, don't really? Really, they don't really play it that great. Like Danko flubs kind of a couple of notes. Some of these songs were difficult to play because Dylan would kind of change things up on the fly. Right. You can hear that on like even before the band played with them, like on Subterranean Homesick Blues, he kind of sings it slightly different each time. So sometimes the bass player misses the root note. Like that was kind of, he's hard to play with. I think to this day, you, he kind of like, Oh, he's impossible. He doesn't ever do it in the yeah. same way twice. So, um, so you can hear they're kind of sooner or later is an amazing song. It has a great energy to it and it, it works, but yeah. it's a little bit, they, they don't play it flawlessly. <laughs> they don't, you know, when he goes to Nashville and he's playing with all those amazing top called Nashville guys, they kind of nail it. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're kind uh, yeah, of they, those guys are super. I mean, blonde on blonde. We're not here to talk about how great that album is. Yeah. It's kind of beyond. Reproach, it's interesting but, thing, though the difference between the band and then the Nashville cats right, that are right. playing on it. It's it's kind of interesting the, to hear. But the, the musicianship yeah. of the band, I just think they were out of their element. They're not yes. used to like. Right, I agree. Just right. just push play and we do magic. Yep. Now here's they have where to get out on the road with him here, to exactly. become that. Here's yeah. where things kind of take a turn. Uh, an interesting turn. So. um 
all the booing that occurs during this tour it didn't and, really occur it didn't really occur that much well it occurred to whatever extent it did that it pushed levon helm to to think that working on a fucking oil rig in the gulf of mexico was the better <laughs> job option so something happened and i think it was it was you know the truth i think, I think the pay had something to do with it too also, think about the audience at these shows that is booing you, okay? This is not like an audience of bikers. That is, These are like polite beatniks that are booing you. This is not like a threatening situation or something, you know? These are like people who wearing turtlenecks who want to hear, right, you know, right. hear blowing right. in the wind, you know? Right. It's not like... I think- I think, I think it's just a little like, bit overstated how the how much the booing was really like you know I think I think there might be I would not be surprised at all if it was really a money thing. But he he whatever the the actual intention was he leaves for quite a while he leaves for approximately Two, a year and a half year, yeah a year and a half so yeah. um, and they so, get that other guy said, that well, other guy that's playing with the band in the in the there were the two document, yeah there were two right? guys actually so the first guy was in January '66 a guy named Sandy Konikoff. Uh, he joined the Hawks, played several shows in February and March. Then when the tour moved to Australia and Europe in April of 66, and that's yeah. when like true magic starts to happen, Konikov is replaced by Mickey Jones. Wanna yes, ta- I yes. want to talk about Mickey for a second. He's a pretty so, interesting character. So Mickey Jones winds up as an actor on Home Improvement. The, he's, a, he's a character actor. He was in a million things. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, and you know, I have to say, and this is not a popular trend in history, that I believe that he was the perfect drummer for this tour because he plays with such uh, like mallet-like force. I don't think Levon would have been able to transcend, you know, whatever kind of chaos was coming from the crowd with as strident a playing style. Yeah, Mickey Jones has kind of a fuck you in his playing. Like yeah. he, he, he sort of has a very aggressive kind of popping snare drum on two and four. He's a very heavy backbeat drummer. So, um, Well, know. let's also talk about how loud they played. So yeah. one of the things about where they come from is you're in a bar with people dancing and people throwing bottles and loud. And so they had had, just from their inception, they played live really loud. Right. Like right. 11. Right. And and you're and you're a kid in England going to see a folk show and all of a sudden it's the loudest and it's the loudest thing you've ever fucking heard in your life. And you've just sat through <laughs> a set of Dylan playing hushed acoustic music. Right, right, exactly. Playing like, you know, in his most delicate and, types and, of performances. And singing in a totally spectral, wispy style. <laughs> you've boom. already sat through 40 minutes of yeah, that yeah. and then the band comes on. So, yeah, that must and have so been quite an eye-opener. I, I have friends that, you know, that I've met along the way. Um, guy Richard Cole, who worked with Led Zeppelin, told me when he saw the band at the Wait, Richard Cole's the Dylan. shark meat guy? Yeah, it's well, the mud shark. That's, a, that's a little bit of mythology, but uh, you're just covering your friend's ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, no band members were involved in that. So, so, so what he said, he was at that show. He said, Bob, it was the loudest fucking racket you ever heard in your life. And I believe that because he's working with the who. At that yeah. yeah, yeah, it sounds you like it on I mean? the recordings. It sounds like pretty blown yeah. out. But it and there's a reason behind it because you have to blow through all this sound in a roadhouse. You have yeah. to play on ten. It was a long tour. Um, it, they were on the road for like four months, pretty yeah. playing. It, it must have been a little bit more grueling to tour in those days than it is now. Too, it must have been. And so they bond over that, and then they and then they make some of the greatest songs ever. On a break from touring on July 29th, 1966, Dylan is injured in a motorcycle accident. 
that precipitates his retreat into semi-seclusion in Woodstock. That's New York. So here's this weird area now, okay, for several months where nothing is fucking happening. So the Hawks return to the bar and roadhouse touring circuit, sometimes backing other singers, sometimes not, including a brief stint with Tiny Tim, some of which I've heard because I own a bootleg with... um, you know, unfortunate collaborations between the two. Have you heard any of this bullshit, Bob? You know, I've heard I've heard that they played with Tiny Tim. I haven't heard the song. I wish my knowledge of the whole thing just went to that extent. I'm just gonna use my ima- I'm gonna use my imagination and just yeah. imagine what it might sound like. Yeah, the that imaginarium is the best place for that. Okay. So then in fall sixty six still Levon still Levon's not back in the band yet or he's back in? No, no, he's gone. He's gone. I'll definitely make note of when that happens. So in fall of 66, uh, the only shred of recorded evidence that we have is a Richard Manuel uh, uh, demo that's just called Beautiful Thing Song Sketch. Um, So this was in a friend's photo studio, just a sort of offhanded special little gem. He's kind of humming some of the lyrics. He doesn't have lyrics yet. It's uh, you can hear it on a musical history. Uh, this will definitely be on our playlist. It's the first taped sign of Manuel coming to his own as a songwriter. Yeah, it's kind of interesting in that re- for like archivally for that reason. He's but kinda, you can hear him kind of developing his style. And and, in, you know, it's we were talking about this earlier before we started that uh, you know about Richard as a songwriter. He was kind of really holding his own equally with Robbie uh, in those early days, and then kind of just didn't really keep up with it. Um, but it, interestingly, I almost too, think more so. They to have me, a similar like, voice as songwriters. Yeah. They have a similar kind of chord vocabulary and kind of a similar they style. They do. Well, the whole thing has a tapestry to it that that, like, you're talking about three of the most distinct voices of that era in music. Yet they all, it all seems to make sense. You have this main lead songwriter, but other people in the band writing songs also. And it has this, it blends all together perfectly. Much like, I hate to say it, I never thought of this until you made the the Beatles comparison about the musicality of them. Much like the Beatles. Yeah. Anyway, so now we're getting into... Um, okay, uh, so guys, Woodstock. let's let's get there. Okay, come, please take my hand, each of you, uh, on each yes, side. Please yes, walk yes. with me. Are so, we going to Big Pink? <laughs> we're going to Big Pink, gentlemen. So here's what happened, okay? Dylan invited the Hawks to join him in Woodstock in February 1967. Danko is the one who found what he thought might have been the perfect rental. Okay, so Danko, Manuel, and Hudson wind up moving into the, this large... Uh, pink house, which looks great to men and abhorrent to women, apparently, which they named Big Pink in West Saugerties, New York. The next month, initially without Levon Helm, they commenced recording a an incredibly widely bootlegged and stupidly influential series of demos, initially at Bob Dylan's house in Woodstock, later at Big Pink, um, which wound up being released later on in 75, in um, expurgated version and in full in 2014. Uh, I want to talk first about what I believe to be the very first bootleg of all time, The Great White Wonder. Yeah, The Great White Wonder is this, it, well, that was the, the songs that were given to the publisher, correct? Right. right? It was like so, a publishing acid. Like that, I think A.J. Weberman got a hold of it, right? Right. The uh, notorious trash humper, uh, A.J. Weberman. <laughs> so, yeah, they compiled, but I think it was like 14 songs or something for um, for to, to give to publishers to pitch these songs for other artists to cover. The, yeah, Roger McGuinn was first in line probably, and then, you know, 
you get like a group maybe like the leaves in the at the very end of the line. Right. They're a very, very distinctive sound very much began to pull together during 1967 when they, along with Bobby D, improvised and recorded a giant number of first just cover songs and then all of a sudden, you know, a a volcanic volcanic eruption of original material. It might be the greatest six months of making music in the history of rock music. I, I may have to agree with you. Yeah, it's some great actually. shit. So uh, this, I just want to let you all know the address of Big Pink. And you can stay there if you <clears throat> ever want to do a rental. You can. It's like an Airbnb type property. Fifth, oh, my God. I know. Everything is, everything is prostituted at this point. <laughs> he said as he got in his car and drove 100 miles an hour to Big Pink. <laughs> <laughs> I've okay. driven out in front. I don't want to stay in there unless you can bring some equipment in there and get a bunch of musicians. That's, what I, that's, exactly, that's exactly what I said. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So it's 56 Parnassus Lane, Socrates, New York. Phase two, getting it together in the country, 1967 to 1970. So these are guys in their mid to late 20s. Um, they're all starting to make make a living obviously Dylan making the most and they want to start having a family and they want to settle down somewhere. The idea that let's all move to upstate New York and start our families and live in the same neighborhood. So all the powers that be really orchestrated something beautiful and he can yeah. play music anytime right. he wants, walk right. down the street. He's got access to the greatest musicians in the world. They're coming into their own as songwriters. What a magical time. And also, also, you look at the rest of the country, everyone, at least, you know, in all the big cities, they're, it's all flower children. And, you know, we, uh, you know, I don't have a mom and dad. I'm a child of the universe. Um there's something very, very different brewing. In well, this think basement. about what happens there. Not only this great music and this great songwriting. I think Robbie has like five kids. Dylan has like six kids. Three, three kids. Uh, I know Robbie has 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 two back to back in Woodstock. But um, anyway, yeah. the sessions with Dylan end in October '67. What happens at this point? By uh, by this point, I don't know exactly when. But Levon rejoins the group. Um, the Hawks begin writing their own songs at Big Pink. When they go into the recording studio, they still didn't have a name for themselves. Stories, you know, they, they vary all over the place uh, as far as how they got the, the name. But, um, you know, they were going to call themselves the Honkies or the Crackers. Uh, the Crackers, actually, they used... When uh, they backed Dylan for a January 68 concert tribute to Woody Yeah, Hawkins. I'm going to say another drug reference. Marijuana, a hell of a drug. Coming <laughs> up with a name like the Hawk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so before we so, move on from uh, the, the basement tape sessions, there's another, I think, key thing about that that I think um, you didn't really see a lot of this at the time in music is that they, you know, they're making recordings, writing songs at this very off-the-clock, kind of leisurely sort of pace. They're not showing up at a recording studio and it's like, okay, we got to get a cut done this afternoon. They're right. taking their time. Mm-hmm. They have, like, you know, well, basically I think, endless I think amounts of looser, time. I think it's looser than that. Right. I think Dylan, Dylan talks about, in the interviews, just walking over there and whoever was up and whoever was there, they'd have some coffee or whatever else, some smoke some weed, and just go downstairs with whoever was awake. Yeah. 
Kind of, kind of like uh, uh, Exile on Main Street at yeah, Nellcote yeah, five years later. <laughs> so this yeah, sort of yeah. like unrushed, kind of like unrehearsed. Let's make this as it unfolds. Nobody really did that. There was no yeah. like you know g- like guy that goes to the log cabin with his guitar and makes a record sort of thing. This was really like kind of like the first thing. Yeah, and like that. Understand that Keith Richards knew about Big Pink. Right. So yeah. when he moves to France in exile, he knows like we can do this. We can put a recording studio in this house. And he was, he was thinking those idiots only smoked weed. We got to introduce heroin into this. Whole thing. <laughs> but I, I, I do think the idea of being off the clock became influential from those recordings. I, yeah. think, I think that became a thing that people figured out you could do. You didn't necessarily have to be at a recording. Well, but studio. I mean, if it's, if there's, if you're not paying by the hour, and you're just yeah. and you can, you can do, do record you whenever you want. Yeah. That's why they can record 50, 60, 70 songs in like eight plus, months. Plus, life was limitless. Bob had gotten off the fucking gravy train. These guys had hooked up with an obvious genius. They had a really good situation. Um they were right at the beginning at the cusp of greatness and they knew it. Um so now Levon's back. They're totally excited. Everything clicks. They have a name. It's January 1968. Uh, I Ain't Got No Home, Dear Mrs. Roosevelt, and The Grand Cooley Dam are the three songs they do at that Woody Guthrie tribute gig. It's not a very well-known thing. Um, You can definitely find it. I'm not going to rate it. 1968, music from Big Pink. From the moment you put the needle on the record, you're taken to another world, and you don't know where where that world is. Is it from 1884? Is it now? Is it New York and hip and cool upstate, you know, Bob Dylan? What world are they taking you to? I, I've listened to this record since 1968, and I still don't know where this world is that they take you, but they take you there. Yeah, yep, for sure. Well, let's get this out of the way first, because I know Joe wants to address this. Okay, let's talk about the old weird America so we can get this out of the fucking way. Well, yeah, I mean, I th- that's been talked about a lot. They're kind of, you know, the the Grail Marcus, like Rolling Stone, the kind of mythologizing of them. That stuff's all cool. It's been kind of mentioned a lot. I'm not really that super interested in it. I'm kind of more interested in what's actually on the records. Um, you know, I plus plus the emotional psychology of the the band interaction. Yeah, forget about the you know the 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 weird places the mind goes. When that you stuff's hear this all music. out there. I I do recommend all the all the the, the old weird America. I, I do recommend that it's worth a read. I didn't I didn't really want to go too much into that here. Yeah. Um. But you know there is that kind of overlay on it of that it's from this other time and place. And um, it's like an extra dimension to the like, like kind of like just what Bob is saying. When is this from? How is this? You know, right. what, what period is this? I will say that as a younger and dumber person, I actually thought this was all recorded at the house in Big Pink. I that's yeah, which yeah, it's not. It's, it too. was done in the studio, right? I always assumed it was done at the house. And I want to mention the production work by John Simon, who you know you gotta actually count as another member of the band, yeah, because, especially at this time. Because, yeah, because when he leaves. He leaves on, he's gone by stage fright. Their sound changes considerably. Yeah. I mean, well, but let's look at the other things going on in 1968. You've got, you've got Hendrix. You've got these elaborate guitar solos. You've got the beginnings of rock stardom where you get all dressed up. The and rock operas. And these big and rock operas and yes is coming and all these, all this grandiosity. Music back then, the music scene was not, 
like it is today. You know, back then, every few months, people got wind of the way things were going to be now. And so getting back to the country became a whole movement. Totally inspired. Totally parallel to other things. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So the, but, but these are the songs they wrote. They sound unique. They sound like nothing before or even since, though they invented a genre of music called Americana. That's one of my most despised genres of music. (laughs) (laughs) It means anybody. Don't you partake in that genre? Yeah, yeah, I do. But, <laughs> American but, is kind of like power pop, where it's like there's Ameri- great there's great shit, but it's not necessarily the coolest thing. But there's <laughs> yeah. great shit in there. It's not the sound that everyone copied off this, which I did on Moonshiner. Also, it's not the sound; it's the songs, and yeah. that's what the Americana movement in America misses. So it's yeah. about songs. Let, let's talk. Well, hold on. Let's talk about the songs. So first, I want to say before we just focus on this record that my whole life. I, it's been a toss-up between music from Big Pink and the eponymous record. They're both so unbelievably good that it's almost impossible to pick a favorite. There's no bad songs on either record. Uh, they're staggeringly good. Let's just start with Tears of Rage. So yeah, Big Pink, it, this is the kind of album where it's it's a, it's a debut album that sounds like a greatest hits album. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's a compilation of like every amazing thing you've ever done. And it's just, but it's just their first album. And yeah, great, amazing iconic song after iconic song starting with tears of rage yeah so tears of rage is uh an absolutely heartbreaking bob dylan richard manuel co-write uh which reads i always thought my whole life it was about a wayward daughter uh in you know i'm i guess i'm not the uh, brightest bulb in the box because apparently it's more about a way our wayward country um, the Nolans touches are just right all the you know the funereal uh horn charts are amazing yeah, it's amazing uh, that's the thing that i had never heard before what the wayward country thing no the 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 horns oh, that just to listen to that. Yeah. because because until this point horns are just accents like mm-hmm. in sam and dave or in stack songs or in aretha franklin songs they're accents or they're they're alternative melodies like in stevie wonder in this it's a funeral behind the song if, uh, yeah, apparently a funeral for the country. Yeah. There's all that space in it. There's so much space in the song. The, 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 there has that great like kind of swing. It has a real like loping kind of swing to it. And yeah. it's just a very comfortable sort of sound. A lot of their of this album sounds like we're reliving the past in lyrically. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and you're talking about this is still not far from Jim Crow South. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. how who who won the war? Was the war really won? Right, uh, it, like the, these types of themes. They're not they're not specifically lyrically, but they are there. And I I feel like the tears of rage are for the individual and for the mass and yeah. for the whole. Like we are not who we think we are. Uh, I'm not who I think I am, and we are not who we think we are. Yeah. That's what I get out of it. And now the heart is filled with gold, as if it was a purse. Brilliant. I just so got good. wood. <laughs> yeah i just got chills i got chills i you know it's so hard to not it's so hard for me not to think of how lonely he was that night he took his own life yeah yeah so it's just so hard this beautiful man who is able to to express these deep existential pain 
And then he ends up in that typical cliched ending that, that you wish you, you didn't have. And, but but way before that ending, when you watch the uh, Once Were Brothers documentary, which I very, very highly recommend, <clears throat> you, um, you hear Robbie Robertson talk with great pain, actually, about how he loved writing with Richard Manuel, but uh, at a certain point, pretty briefly into his their career together as a recording artist, he had nothing to offer. He okay, said it I'm like gonna, that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you, alcohol is a hell of a drug. <laughs> you seem to like, you seem to like all of these drugs somehow. <laughs> well, they each do their damage. They do. You know what they I mean? do. So let let's let's keep going through the song. So Tears of Rage is a classic. The second song, you think how where are they going to go from there? To Kingdom Come, uh, what an amazing song! Shredding guitar solo, religious over religious overtones. I mean, you, you never. I'm a, you got to understand. I'm like eight years old when I hear this record. It's mm -hmm. my sister's record, and I know that it's Bob Dylan's people, right? That like, and I love like a Rolling Stone. And I'm listening to this, and she's listening to it. I remember listening to it in my sister's room with her. And it's just like, what the fuck is this? You know what I mean? It starts out with this tear-drinking ballad. Then it goes into this religious song with this shredding blues guitar. Yeah, that guitar song is nuts. It's nuts. And it's like nothing you ever heard before. And it's not like anything going at that point. Yeah. It really, it's really true. The the sequencing of the record, um, it, you know, I, you gotta you gotta incredible. figure the record company didn't want the album to open with tears. Of rage yeah, it's a really that. it's an, it's interesting sequencing. <laughs> you know, in a way, it's everything is so good, so you could almost sequence it in any way, and it would be amazing. But the drama of everything and the unexpectedness of each, especially the first like five six songs, right? Uh, yeah. Everything is really kind of uh, unexpected. The, the, the whole first side, it, it is one of the greatest album sides. Ever. You got Tears really of Rage is. to Kingdom Come, In a Station, Caledonia Mission, and The Wait. But yeah, so another cool thing on this record, um, I, you know, this is kind of a good, uh, a really great Garth record. He's kind of playing the Lowry organ a lot, and uh, he makes that organ sound very synth-like. He gets kind of crazy tones out of it. He comes and sets up, and he's got like eight keyboards around him. You don't know what he's playing. I would question any studio work that that Garth has done that that's actually the instrument that he's given credit on the record because right, right. he just switches from one to the other and he plays both with both at the same time yeah this record is and, all and, live and, no overdubs yeah Are so he's serious? he's using yeah, yeah no, no i didn't even know this that. is no overdubs all not live. The, wow. not the vocal the vocals are are dubbed yeah. but the music is all right, live in right, the studio yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the third song, In a Station. So this is a straight-up Manuel uh, thing. Richard Manuel wrote it. He sings it. It's the most emotionally affecting song on the entire album. It's just pure sad. So whenever he arrives on the scene, it's just pure, you know, mood-style sadness. Uh, plus, the spidery bottleneck guitar, I'm guessing that's Robbie Robertson, Yeah, uh, is just spine-tingling. Every single time I hear it, I get chills down my spine the way that that is shattering. I know, shattering and, the and it, and he never overdoes it. He doesn't overdo it. Like you know, there's a lot of things can be said about him in the context of the band or in life in general, but he never overplays. He really never, true. he never does what Hendrix and and Eric Clapton and all the others do. He never does it, and you get the sense he could do it. Absolutely, He's gonna do it. But he never does. Very always true. tasteful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Always amazing. 
always amazing. I'm sure Richard Manuel is rolling in his grave knowing that we're talking about his song and we're only focusing on Robertson's <laughs> contribution. <laughs> well, well. Garth in that tune is kind of like like a Baroque, like classical. Like I love his little organ yeah. flourishes in that. Yeah, it's it, amazing. This, this could be my favorite song on the record. It's the one I always go to first. Great song. Um, Caledonia Mission, a Robertson tune, uh, Rick Danko singing. Uh, his vocal is just incredible. It's like the platonic ideal performance of Danko's lifetime. I really love it. And then the weight. So uh, the so this is what they're. You think this is their most famous song? It probably is. Right? Uh, it's one of them. It's no, one, the yeah. night they drove old Dixie down. You think that is? Yeah, but that... they but they stopped playing it. How about the fact that they were politically correct long before political correctness came about? Yeah, yeah. They decided in probably 80, when they got back together or whatever, but without Robbie, probably in 82, 83, we shouldn't play that song. Which is weird because it doesn't seem like it's really a glorification of anything. I mean, I get, right. I get why they stopped playing it. It is kind of on the south side. <laughs> it is kind of. Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But um, so side one's perfect. Uh, you got a couple of songs uh, that start us off. Uh, maybe well, before a we move, bit... before we move on from the weight, we should try to talk about that for for a second. So yeah. that's kind of like the first, or you know, or maybe the the most famous example of them doing one of those kind of story songs where they're this kind of like allegory of with these crazy characters you meet on a road trip yes. or something, you know. And um, also bringing a cinematic influence in for Robbie as a writer. Yeah, but it's there's it's also really relatable. Like it's kind of a highfalutin concept in a way, but it's like you know it, it's it's very relatable and listenable. It doesn't really come. It's it's like uh, it seems somehow universal, even if you don't really know what you know the meaning. Even if that's not really connecting with you, it does sound like kind of ancient. It does it sounds kind of like an old. Like it's from that. This is maybe the uh, ultimate example of the old weird America thing. Where it's, yeah. It sounds like a different kind of song that people weren't writing anymore. Um, and it just totally works. There's, well, there's something vaguely biblical about it. You know? And also it's possible that the best moment in their entire career is and the layering of those vocals. Yeah. There's something that defines the group. With I mean, in the general, way it, all the vocals on that song are, are amazing. Yeah. The, the way they switch off the verses and yeah, incredible. So side two starts with We Can Talk, which oddly is Richard Manuel. Um, he wrote that. It's not a typical song for him. Uh, definitely a spirited open uh, opener. Not my favorite song on the record, but definitely atypically rollicking for him. Uh, and I love it. Long Black Veil. We know Long Black Veil. It's a 1959 country ballad. By Lefty Frizzell, or originally recorded by him, mm -hmm. and it's one of Danko's greatest leads. I think I mean, it fits in so perfect; it really does sound like they like. It sounds it was like written, it sounds yeah. like it was written for this record specifically, even though it's a cover. Um, almost like kind of a weird little hint from where they came from, a little Easter egg or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and the next four songs, I have to say, are so fucking good that I have to stop and catch my breath and let you guys take over. Chest Fever, Lonesome Susie, This Wheel's on Fire, and I Shall Be Released. I just can't take it. You guys take over. It's, it's, it's too much. Chest Fever, as crazy as it sounds, was covered by a band from Detroit called The Gods, G-O-D-Z. <laughs> I know The Gods very well. And it was... And it, and it was a regional hit for the gods. <laughs> That's awesome. In 1976. And I was the only one in my long-haired puka shell wearing 70s, you know, Led Zeppelin stoner dude group of friends <laughs> that knew. I said, That's not a God song. That's by the band, the Bob Dylan band, the band. And they're like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. 
chest fever is kind of like uh like it's it's sort of like the the closest they get to like a hard rock like you could almost hear like vanilla fudge covering it or something yeah 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 <laughs> it has yeah, that yeah. really kind of uh, that heavy organ so, like all the great yeah but gu- guys what's up with the fucking salvation army midsection breakdown before the psych organ solo kicks in well that organ solo is nuts it's somehow marijuana is a hell of a drug <laughs> When I first started smoking pot, chest fever was a huge go-to for me. Somehow he's like he's he's like uh, bending the notes on the organ. Somehow he must yeah, be yeah. like moving the tone wheel or something to bend the notes. Pretty uh, pretty amazing. The part where he goes. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how he's even doing that. It sounds like a it's like a like a pitch bender on a synth and or you, something. You he want must to hear, have his hand on the tone wheel. You want to hear something really weird? Levon Helm has said that Lonesome Susie, which is one of the most unbelievably sad songs of all time was Richard's failed attempt to write a hit record. Oh my God. How weird is that? Really? Yeah. That is totally weird. Yeah. Quality research there. Um, So Lonesome Susie, that could actually be my favorite Richard Manuel vocal. Uh, It's possible. There's stiff competition, but he was just on fire at that time. There's also... um, uh, yeah, Katie's Been Gone was recorded during those sessions. I have no idea how that sat around for a bunch of years. That was a co-write with um, uh, Richard Manuel and Robbie Robertson. <clears throat> and it could be my favorite thing that Richard Manuel's ever done. Um, so many good songs during this time. What I'm what I'm realizing, and I didn't realize it until you so, so perfectly list the songwriter credits because I've never really looked at it. I usually, in my mind, think I know who wrote what songs. Richard Manuel and Robbie Roberts put a toe head to head here. Yeah, I didn't really yeah. realize that until now. I I actually think that Manuel's stuff is better. I didn't know this until we're talking. You got this like Lennon and McCartney thing going back and forth right here. And then it just disappears. I mean, as quickly as it is, um, as he's a threat, he's absolutely not. This is his shining moment as a songwriter. This is like his yeah. his, his apex, which, yeah. which is not, which is a pretty damn solid apex. So, guys, you're <laughs> never gonna believe it. Okay, you're absolutely never gonna. Be- oh, oh, wait, I got to talk about one other song. I'm so sorry. Before I uh, before we go ahead with the ratings, Ferdinand the Imposter. It's a Robbie Robertson song with Rick Danko singing. It's a fall 1967 outtake. A total masterpiece in my mind that easily could have been on the LP, but somehow was completely mysteriously left behind. Um, This record is less pulled together and packaged with a bow than the Brown album, but and it's still very arguable which of the two records is the better one. It used to be this one all the way for me, but these days, honestly, it depends on the weather. This feels more like the biblical one, whereas the second one strikes me as the Civil War one. Let's just say it's enough. I give it five stars. If, if I could give this six stars, I would. Yeah. Yeah. We cap it at five. I, I, I so give it 11. Of, it goes to 11. <laughs> one of the greatest albums ever made. It is one of the greatest albums. Greatest Unquestionably. That summer, they performed at Woodstock. Uh, you don't see it in the movie because of legal complications. And later that year, um, I think it was like a month later, actually, they performed with Dylan at the Isle of Wight Festival in Britain. Uh, subsequently on the self-portrait record, you can hear some of those tracks. So what happened was the band was planning to go out on tour and Rick Danko broke his neck in a car accident, one of many. So instead of touring, Robbie Robertson wrote another batch of songs that were really, really good. He and the band rented Sammy Davis Jr.'s old house out in Los Angeles. 
Uh, some multi-track recorders were installed in the pool house, and two and a half months were spent recording what most considered to be their masterpiece. The Brown Album, they got there before Ween did. It's 1969. So a lot of the songs that Robbie wrote, I guess, I I think this is in the Classic Albums documentary. He talks about he, he had small children around. It was writing a lot late at night when they were asleep. So the songs kind of have a quiet kind of like mm-hmm. thing to them. A lot of them were kind of done on like finger picking guitar or like kind of very quietly on piano. So that's kind of a lot of the songs come from that. Have him having to be sort of quiet. And and guys, it's it's two years after the basement tapes. Right. And the location of Sammy Davis Jr.'s house was chosen. It's on Mulholland. Yeah. 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 No, it was on uh, Evan View Drive. It's up uh, by like five zero. It's not far from like Chateau Marmont and like uh, like the, where the comedy store is. It's kind of like right, right right up in there. Oh, I was. Oh, I thought he, he had a house on Mulholland too. I looked that it up was, on the map. Yeah, eighty eight fifty Evan View Drive, Los Angeles. So they set up gear in there, and it, you know it was just it was Sammy's pool house, and kind of Robbie did a lot of the engineering. He's kind of learning how to engineer and record. record I have heard fly. that. I have heard that. But but it's two years after um, Basement Tapes, and this location was chosen specifically to give the songs a Basement Tapes like feel. That he calls it a clubhouse concept. Right off um, the clock again. Right, right. Um, so it's usually seen as a concept album, even though it's kind of not. It just has, you know, a very obviously, you know, uh, unavoidable theme running through the record, but it's not really a concept album. They talked about it again in that, which I, I really do recommend the classic albums thing. Um, they, they, you know, the idea of this is like, you know, it's this, it's the winter time, the harvest has come in and we're all like, you know, drinking some cider, <laughs> kicking up and having a party, you know, that's, that's kind of like the thing they were going for. sort of like that harvest kind of time. You know, that celebration. It's kind of a celebration. It's a very inviting, uh, friendly kind of record. It really invites you in. The way the album kicks off with, uh, you know, with the, uh, you know, the walloping horns kicking in on Across the Great Divide, it's really uh, just, it feels like an invite. It's kind of a good time opening for the record. Um, you guys have favorites from this? I don't even know. What, how do you even talk about a record like this? I mean, Rag Mama impossible. Rag um, is so great. I mean, that's it's such a simple song, uh, but the way they play on it. Rag Mama Rag is one where they switch up. So Richard plays drums. Right. Um, Levon's playing um, mandolin. Danko on fiddle. Uh, John Simon on tuba. And Garth, um, because Richard isn't playing p- piano, Garth is playing piano, and he plays just the most insane like like barrel house piano. It's the best piano licks. Like he's he just really dresses it up real nice with his and, orientation. And it, what year is this? Sixty eight also? Sixty nine. Because I just remember yeah. now they're stars. Now they're you know who they are, right. you know who that the, they're this band to be reckoned with. And they their singing is even more competent. That's what I remember. Like it's in your face. They're they're rock stars. They're the future of music. But they're the best kind of rock star because they never were able to go out on tour because of Danko's accident. So they're rock stars with mystique intact. In fact, there's that that famous Rolling Stone cover where it's the five of the them back, on, on the bench the backs, with their the backs. backs. The, yeah, yeah, it's just fucking awesome. And, it's so good. That didn't but last. But if you're a fanatic oh. about singing and songs and voices, now it's, now you're familiar with their voices. Their voices are more confident. The songwriting right. is more, yeah, like you said, conceptual, distinct. Now you know what it is. When you listen to Big Pink, you don't know what you're going to hear. You're just really listening to it because of Bob Dylan. Now you know what right. you're hearing. And they here's the thing. 
This is their sophomore album. Everybody's heard of the sophomore jinx. They blow the sophomore jinx out of the out of the water. They just come right through. Here's who we are. You liked us before. Now we're even better. Fuck you. Is it possible this is the best second album? It it might be the best second album. Unless Electric Ladyland is considered a second album. So these are almost all, uh, there's a few co-writes, but other than that, they're all, uh, most of the iconic songs. Yeah, they're uh, Robbie. Robbie. This is just yeah. Robbie's. And- Across the Great Divide, Rag Mama Rag, drove, Night They Drove, drove Old Dixie Down, uh, Up on Cripple Creek, Unfaithful Servants. That's, wow, what a bloody yeah, that, bunch of songs. He was, he <laughs> Holy was, shit. That, the balance was great because you still had the guys pitching in. You still had them doing good stuff. Um, but Robbie is firing on all cylinders. So if you believe, but I just think now he takes control of the band. He uses the voices. He knows who's gonna. He's not, he knows who's gonna sing what song. He knows everything. Yeah. He's now controlling the studio. This is why he gets all this shit known as a control freak and a power mad right, guy. Right. Is this album because he really pushes everyone out of the way? He's gonna engineer the record. He's gonna write the songs. I know what you're gonna sing. Uh, this is what we're gonna play. He's now the arrange. He already was the arranger. Yeah, Robbie seems like a Robbie's like a seems like a Mick Jagger guy, a guy who's gonna get a little bit wasted, but he's always gonna have control. McCartney, right, right. He well, the entertainment. I I equate the band always when I talk about them to try to educate somebody about them is they were a carnival, and Robbie Robertson was the guy who owned the, right. the circus. He's the he's the guy. He's the Ringling Brothers, and yeah, you go there. You go there to see the guy swallow the swords, but it's actually the money goes to the owner. So speaking of the the owner of the circus, let's talk about the the remainder of that perfect album side. You got across the Great Divide, Rag Mama Rag, Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, When You Awake, and Up on Cripple Creek. Uh, and it ends with Whispering Pines, could which could actually be my favorite song on the entire album. And definitely a vibey indication that suicide may be lurking ahead for this poor guy. Yes, for sure. But I, I mean, tears of rage hints at it. But, but Cripple Creek, let's talk about Cripple Creek. That's the first song I ever heard the band that my sister listened to mm-hmm. on the radio, which now you got a AM radio, KHJ radio in Los Angeles song being played. Now, Is sky's it- the limit. And I believe... And I believe the end is near. Same on the same plane, the end of this is near because Rick Danko and Levon Helm don't write songs, and they're the heart and right. soul of the band. Yeah, I mean, up on Cripple Creek is so much fun. The fun factor of that song, yep. the, the the kind of funk to it, and like the it's another one of those where it's kind of the allegorical story. Um, yeah, a drunkard's dream. If I ever did see one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk about a couple of songs on the second side. Rocking chair. Look out, Cleveland. Um, these are not songs that are typically talked about uh, from this record. Rockin' Chair is one of my favorites. Rockin' Chair is unbelievable. I mean, it it feels like you're hanging out on the porch with lemonade and accordions. Um, it it's just it's a real sneak. It's Camp, one of my campfire sing along song. Yeah, like, yeah it's really so good. Um, not a bad song in this whole thing. I mean. <clears throat> Unfaithful Servants, one of my favorites. Another Robbie song. Great Rick Danko vocal. One of my favorite uh, Danko showcases perfect song for him um it, that song kind of unfaithful servant has these like has a really kind of sophisticated chord changes to it it's almost like a like a jazz kind of style chord changes it's just like very complicated like descending chord figure if you sit down and like try to figure it out on the piano 
it's definitely doesn't feel like old, like rag, you know, like, like the old barrel house blues thing. It's a very sophisticated melodically and harmonic song. So Appar- it's pretty apparently they did 30 or 40 takes and then ju- of the vocal right. and then just use the first one. It's interesting how they can work that in there and, and it doesn't sound out of place when they, you know, they, they bring in those kind of really sophisticated kind of chord changes. The record, re- the record really ends with sort of a bummer, uh, one, two punch, the unfaithful servant and King harvest to surely come. That's kind of a song of dashed expectations. And that's the, the last song in the record. Um, yeah, King great. Harvest is like uh, everyone's going to starve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, not not many people will end their records with uh, uh, with a song about labor union organizers. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. Uh, it's definitely great, though. I mean, the, there's not a bad song in this record. It really is. It's the feeling of the Deep South. It's ancient, creaking, lived-in, living music that just courses through the the album it just feels so really comfortable like uh like your favorite chair uh or putting on an old pair of slippers that just know your fucking feet so well uh one of the greatest albums ever made a hard five yeah i would i would agree i have to give it five stars too i i give it five because to me just delivering a sophomore album with so much expectation so much at stake and and letting some and doing things differently than you did them on the first record. That's what's so unique about this. I know what it's like to be in a band and make records. And it's so when you make something good, you right. want to do exactly the same yeah. thing the next time. And they don't do that. They go from upstate New York to fucking Hollywood and they're and they're running around Sunset Strip and being influenced by the materialism and greed and hedonism of Los Angeles. And they make right. this record. It's insane. So, you know, a lot of things start piling up on them now. Things start getting intense for them. So they're running uh, counter to everything that's going on at that point. So just by dint of that, uh, they become incredibly inspirational. Uh, you know, they have a massive effect on on the birds with Sweetheart of the Rodeo, uh, which had two basement tapes covers. The Back to the Country music kicks off. It becomes country rock. And that basically defines the first half of the 70s musically. Rolling Stone gives them countless column inches. Um, they become they, kind of the most written about bands like in the world. Yeah. Like they're, they're the kind of band you can really like if you're like a rock critic kind of guy. There's like a ton of stuff to chew on and talk about. So the, they become like they're, the mythologizing gets pretty crazy. The <laughs> whole thing peaks uh, on January 12th, 1970. Uh, the band are featured on the cover of Time magazine. This is the first rock group after the Beatles to achieve that over two years earlier. So we're at a place that I would probably summarize with two words and that's uh oh, so that's where we're gonna that's where we're gonna leave off for episode one of the band. Uh, please join us uh, next week uh, with Bob Forrest again in tow. He's got to go hang out with Anthony Kiedis and and uh, they he actually really out. literally does. Yeah, when he co- <laughs> yeah when he comes back, yeah. we'll talk about why uh oh and just how far they had to fall to understand that it was uh oh. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, the link to the playlist is in the show notes. It's an incredible playlist. Uh, you know, go on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the regular places. Yeah, hop on the uh, Facebook discussion group. We're trying to like push people to that to come in, like, you know, and, and like come in. And I always try to help people understand, like, you don't have to know everything about it. Just keep an open mind and listen to this because most people 
like you said, it became a critics band. It became Americana. It became like a thing of the past. They were over by 1976. I mean, we can go into the details of what happened to the members, but as the band, they are over in 1976. So they are over yeah. in six years. I, I, I disagree, and I can't wait to argue with you about it in episode two. I do disagree <laughs> with you about that. We will see you for the incredible conclusion to uh, the unrepeatable story of the band. Thank you so much for joining us on Discography. Discography.